Climate change is now rapid, widespread, and intensifying. That is according to a devastating report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which warns that many human-caused effects are now irreversible. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded, an apocalypse, a nightmare, and like looking into the gates of hell. From the New South Wales-Victoria border all the way to the central coast, nine blazes reached emergency warning level today. More species are now threatened with extinction than at any other point in human history. Nearly a quarter of plant and animal species are threatened, many within decades. There's no denying that the facts of climate change are alarming. But the constant exposure to images and statistics of ecological collapse, extinction and severe weather, it has side effects. Climate change activists and scientists alike warn that it can cause indifference and disempowerment. So in a world that needs to take action, not apathy, how can art help us to cut through the noise? In this episode, we're talking about art and climate change. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Sophie Ellis. My name is Zoe Sadakerski and I'm a senior lecturer at the School of Design at UTS. And a lot of my research is around how we can visually communicate ecological issues like climate change and biodiversity loss in a way that engages people and makes them think about um, action that they can take and ways that we could adapt to live differently for a more sustainable future. So what is climate fatigue and why do we feel it? Yeah, climate fatigue and eco-anxiety, um, there's lots of terms for these things um, and it's it's very real. I mean, I feel a sense of grief and anxiety often in the research that I do. Um, but I think what's really important is starting to accept and engage with those feelings and not hide behind them. Feeling the feelings, it seems straightforward. But when we're experiencing such large ecological shifts at a rapid rate, Zoe explains that we must reckon with the inevitable grief of that experience in order to create change. One of the, I guess, the the incredible moments for me, um, we call it a disorienting dilemma, was when I'd been overseas. I was on a research trip overseas in um, November 2019 and so I actually missed the start of the, those horrific bushfires that um, blackened Sydney. And I arrived back after a month of being away. And as the plane flew into Sydney, I just saw the red sun air that you could barely see through. And I felt heartbroken because I was homesick and I was ready to come home. But I flew into a home that I no longer recognised. There's a term for this, which is solastalgia, and it's a feeling of homesickness for a place that you are still within. And so for me, that was a really disorienting moment because I literally felt like I'd come back into an alien landscape. And I felt real despair at that. But then, you know, do we need people who are in a privileged position? And I'm a privileged person 
to be wallowing in their kind of uh, despair and anxiety or do we need to pick ourselves up and think, well, what can I do? One of the driving factors of climate fatigue is the scale of the challenge we face. Psychologists note that when we're faced with a problem on such a complex and global scale, we can find it difficult to comprehend on an individual level. This is where art can help us deconstruct how we think about climate change. Climate fatigue is, I just think it's one of the most insipid things that we have to battle because what we are dealing with um, as the kind of climate crisis accelerates is this oversaturation or this atrophy that we have towards our changing environment or our rapidly changing environment. So the statistics, the graphs, the science that's all telling us that we need to implement very drastic change and very, very quickly, I think that is a really overwhelming thing for a lot of people, myself included. This is Kate Scardyfield. She's an artist and a senior lecturer at the School of Design at the University of Technology, Sydney. She works predominantly with textiles, sculpture and installation, and much of her work focuses on using materials to think through climate change. What I think art has the power to do is provide audiences with different ways of seeing things or different points of view. Imagining something differently, I think, is the first way of instigating any change. And to do this, you need to be able to visualise. You need to be able to prototype. You need to be able to offer people alternate scenarios or show them glimpses of how things could be done differently. What I think art and artists can do is they can make imagination material and they can illuminate pathways towards change. Kate believes that to enact a more environmentally sustainable world, we must first be able to visualise it. Zoe and Kate can both agree that what art can do is tackle this problem of imagination. I think what art can do is that, like I was saying before, art can illuminate these different pathways towards change and it can do so by kind of making them small enough and scalable enough that they feel accessible for people. So they make them kind of human-sized, if that makes sense. It can provide you with an entry point into a really complex, very big, heavy issue. Um, And it can do so in a way that is curious, that could be gentle, that could be playful either, that could be critical, but that it kind of allows you this space of exploration with an openness um, that you don't necessarily have when you're confronted by uh, the graphs and the statistics and the kind of, you know, to put scare quotes in there, the heavy science. Well, we think of science as being something that is supposed to present us facts and objectivity, but we think of art and creative practices as appealing to our more emotional or human um, selves. So I think people feel that they are allowed to engage and bring themselves into an artwork or a performance or even a television show. And so I think the power that art has is to allow us to feel empathy, to bring ourselves into these um, incredibly overwhelming issues and bring them into our personal lives at a local scale. Kate has had to confront climate fatigue in her work with textiles, a material notorious for its troubled ecological impact. 
In doing so, she's found ways to make climate change personal, to write herself and therefore the viewers of her art into a broader environmental story. I'm like everyone else. I find climate change to be one of the most important issues of our time, but also one of the most overwhelming and complex. I think the relationship between the work I make and climate change has got a lot to do with tacit and embodied experience. So having worked with textiles for a very long time, a textile is a text, but it is also something that is in contact with our skin and our bodies on a daily basis, whether that's the clothes we wear, the sheets we sleep in. Now, textiles as an industry is one of the most pollutant globally, and it's caught up in fraught and problematic manufacturing and production chains that are socially unjust, energy intensive, and very heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Uh, so something I have been doing for a while is thinking a lot about the materials I use to make my work, alongside thinking about the weather, and in particular, changing weather patterns. So to do this, I've tried to explore existing polyester fabrics and nylon materials. Uh, so I use old sails and parachutes, camping equipment. And what I'm trying to do through that is kind of reorientate parts of my practice um, towards existing materials. One of the powerful tools art can bring is an imaginative approach to the challenging place we find ourselves in. Zoe Sadakirsky's background as a designer has allowed her to witness the importance of curiosity when facing tough scientific realities. I think the power of curiosity is completely undervalued. When I talk to my students, my university students in first year, curiosity is one of the things that we talk about from day one, that in order to learn anything, you have to be curious because otherwise it's just a whole bunch of information coming at you that it's very hard to process and understand. So I think with something like climate change, most people's instinct is to look away, to kind of go, that's too big, that's too overwhelming, I can't cope with that. But if you can find something to be curious about, to help you find a way into this bigger than uh, humanly imaginable crisis. So could we actually just look at what's happening to the ibis or the fruit bat? Could we look at what's happening to the snails in our garden as one small step to moving into this bigger, overwhelming issue? Breaking down the macro scale of the climate crisis to a micro level is a challenge. However, translating these broad and overwhelming issues to a local or individual level is incredibly effective in responding to climate fatigue. Zoe Sadakersky and her colleagues have created a platform which uses art to help people localise their relationship with the natural world. The Urban Field Naturalist Project is a collaboration between uh, scientists, a philosopher and two designers. We started the collaboration in early 2020 in the first COVID lockdown. Um, Tom Van Duren, John Martin and Dieter Hockelai contacted Andrew Burrell and I from the UTS School of Design and said that they had this idea for engaging people who live in cities with 
the urban wildlife around them through storytelling. So the the point of the project is to get people who live in cities to think about nature as what's happening all around them, on balconies, in local parks, um, on the streets in their neighbourhood, rather than thinking of nature as something that we visit on weekend trips for a bushwalk or an ocean swim. The project is a participatory experience. It draws on the scientific and philosophical tenets of naturalism, the study of the natural world as a whole. The project walks people through a five-step guide to becoming an urban naturalist. What we try and get people to do is write short stories about their encounters in nature, Um, not just noticing what they see, but noticing what those things are doing, how different species are interacting with each other and humans. Um, and noticing plants and animals just thriving or not around them. Well, the idea of a naturalist is that it's someone who learns about the world by being in the world. So what we're trying to do in this project is actually get people to walk outside and look at what's going on around them. And in doing that, in noticing the micro, in noticing the way ants are moving or a snail is moving through your garden, in noticing that there's actually two different types of miners in your backyard and only one of them is native. In thinking about um, the circumstances of the creatures around you, we're hoping that people start to feel more affinity with those creatures, to think of um, the wildlife around us as something that we live with as opposed to being a kind of pest or an irritant in the way of our daily lives. The project then asks people to share their experience through a creative response. Each of them uniquely showcases the tender intimacy of our relationship to nature. On the Urban Field Naturalist website, there's a range of different stories. So the project's only been running for about a year and we've got um, more than 125 stories that have been sent in from all over the world about people making observations in their local area. And there's a really beautiful one written by a high school student in Delhi. And she looked out her window and she noticed a pair of purple sunbirds building a nest in a pair of men's underpants on the washing line outside her window while she was in lockdown. And over a period of months, she watched them build this nest, lay eggs, and then the hatchlings emerged. And it was just this beautiful cycle of life that she emerged and took photographs of and wrote notes about. And I found that a really moving story. For those who engage in the project, observing and noticing the world around them is crucially followed by a form of creative output. Zoe says this active participation, doing something with this experience, is an effective way to dispel the apathy that we're often guilty of. We spend a lot of our time now passively receiving information. Um, In downtime, I'm very guilty of this. I'll open my phone and have a scroll through Instagram or Twitter. Uh, I turn the TV on and I watch whatever it is that's in front of me at the time. And just as quickly as that stuff comes into my mind, it goes out. So by asking people to not only stop and notice, but then translate their observations into a story, it's just adding one extra step of engagement writing yourself into it, giving yourself a moment to spend time, slow down, think about what's happened and reflect on it, and then hopefully share it 
with friends, your community, or the platform that we set up, the Urban Field Naturalist site. I think that encouragement of people to talk and share about their experiences is something that is really important if we want people to engage at a local and community level with what's going on around them. The Urban Field Naturalist Project is an encouraging example of how art can link us back to the natural world. The ability of art to cut through climate fatigue, as Kate Scardyfield explains, is not just on gallery walls and in exhibition spaces. Art in the everyday can help tackle the next big important step, behaviour change. The role of art in everyday life can be such a beautiful way of developing a sensitivity towards the material world. And when we think about uh, what we need more than ever right now is is behavioural change around our consumption practices. So whether that be eating meat or buying fast fashion or down to daily coffees in disposable coffee cups, what art can do on a daily basis is to make us a little bit more sensitive to the things around us, to the way that we use, we reuse, we repurpose uh, or we reimagine our material world. Not only is climate fatigue born out of the sheer volume of images and stories we see about the effect of climate change, the distressing nature of this content is another contributing factor to the problem. I think one role that art and creative practice has is to think about different metaphors that we can be using because metaphors are really powerful ways of getting us to connect with the world and understand it internally. And I think for a lot of people, you know, a starving polar bear on a floating iceberg is a really sad image. But what does that mean for people in Fiji who are actually being directly affected by rising sea levels. Some of the metaphors that we're using and some of the kind of shock horror imagery I think is turning people away. Let's not always look at just the totally alarming, but let's look at things that inspire awe or wonder in us. How do we just notice what is going on around us to ground and centre us and make us pay better attention? For Kate Scardyfield, it's less about the confronting nature of images like the starving polar bear or an oil-slicked seagull, but the way in which we're receiving them. I think those images are harrowing. Um, They are incredibly upsetting, that polar bear, those seagulls. That's also something I think for a lot of people that is mediated via a digital screen. It is you know, at at one of the polar ends of the world. It's it's very far away from people. I think art has the kind of capacity to be very, very sensitive towards our material world and, again, to sort of illuminate things that are outside ourselves that can help us to better understand or have a better access to thinking through the complexities of climate change. Climate fatigue is a barrier to enacting concrete action against climate change. The narratives, stories and images that surround climate communication influence the way we digest and relate to the crisis. Art possesses the ability to personalise the problem, such as understanding ecological loss through sketching the birds in our own backyards. It may seem simple, too simple, reductive of the very real widespread loss we face. But Kate Scardyfield believes the way to continue engagement with an ever-changing crisis is through sharing these intimate stories. 
What I hope to see is a continuation of us sharing stories about our experiences of our changing climate. I think that is crucial work that we all need to maintain in order to placate that climate atrophy that we often have when it is just too big and too distant and too far away and too complex. Climate change is something that is going to be a constant state of transformation. We don't go from static to change, that it is going to be an evolving thing that we live with and we live through uh, for a very long time. And so by sharing stories, I think we maintain a kind of a level of engagement with the issue that is just absolutely crucial. Zoe Sadakierski wants to see more people connecting to climate change through art. For her, art should be an accessible way to engage with these big challenges. I hope that connecting to climate through art is seen as something that lots of people can participate in, that it's not a kind of niche world of people who have artistic talent, that anyone can actually start to think about what they do at a local level, whether it's planting a garden that's um, attractive to native bees or whether it's going for walks and sketching the movements of the animals that you see or whether it's writing uh, poetry or stories or even just talking to the people around you about the awe and wonder that you experience when you're in the natural world that those are art forms in themselves and art doesn't have to be a high art concept that, you know, things that are put in galleries or published in glossy books that all of us can actually participate in celebrating the beauty that we see around us, the awe and sometimes the kind of horror of what's going on in the natural world that we can document that in some way. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I want to leave you with the words of Alankrita Narayan, the author of A Curious Tale about a pair of sunbirds and their unlikely undergarment nest outside the window of her Delhi home, written in response to the Urban Field Naturalist Project. I'm Sophie Ellis. Thanks for your company. I never would have imagined that the idea of ready-to-move-in houses would be prevalent among passerines like sunbirds who are known to construct intricately woven hanging nests. Enter Suraj and Surya, a pair of purple sunbirds who decided to make a nest in the most bizarre place of all, a hanging pair of underwear. I decided to name them Suraj and Surya as both words mean sun in Hindi. They visited me on the morning of 23rd March 2020 the first day of the first nationwide lockdown here in Delhi. The pair perched themselves on the washing line in the backyard and started chittering. Rapid, loud rattles. I sat watching them for quite a while. Their visits became a daily affair. They would announce their arrival with their loud rattles, sounds that probably carried over to about three blocks of the neighborhood. The effortlessly glamorous Suraj would spread out his wings to show off his metallic blue plumes that glistened in the sun. 
even though I knew they were courting, they were already husband and wife in my head. Their daily game of limbo under the washing line and hide and seek among the clothes that were hung out to dry were an absolute treat to watch. Over the next four months, I continued to watch this delightful couple. They were quite habituated to our presence and would spend hours flitting around, inspecting every nook and cranny of the small enclosure at the back of my house that I'm taking the liberty to call the backyard. The morning of 25th June brought a surprise. I spotted Surya and watched her fly into a freshly washed pair of underwear that was hung out to dry. This wasn't unusual. They liked playing inside them. She was gone almost as soon as she arrived, but returned she did, this time with a twig in her beak. 21 visits by her in the same afternoon only meant one thing. She was making a nest. Day in and day out, there she was, doing up the interiors of a pair of men's underwear. I was skeptical of the survival of the soon-to-be-laid eggs. The underwear was just out there, hanging on a rod, with no pegs and open on both ends. The eggs would definitely roll out and fall to the ground. I quickly ran out and secured the underwear with pegs and closed off one end. The more I looked at this nest in progress, the more the idea didn't seem so bizarre after all. The underwear, an olive-brown colour, perfectly resembled a typical sunbird nest. I marvelled at Surya's ingenuity. I couldn't wait to see the eggs but didn't go and peek inside for fear of invading their privacy. On the morning of 1st July, I finally saw Suraj after a whole month. He announced his arrival like an engine in full throttle. He then flew inside the nest and came out of it in a heartbeat. He'd never done that before, gone inside. Knowing that feeding was primarily the father's responsibility, I knew the time had come. The babies were finally here. A quick peek inside the nest and voila! I saw these two tiny pink things, just the size of my pinky toe, with yellow beaks sitting on top of each other. Just this tiny peek at them was enough to make my day. I decided to name them Ravi and Kiran, meaning ray of sunshine in Hindi. Watching these chicks grow up and their parents feeding them up close has truly felt like an honour and has been a delightful experience. Sunbirds have been known to use the same nests for multiple broods, so I dearly hope that they are here to stay. Thank you.